All right, it's just after 6 o'clock and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is the Too Much Information Show. We have a very special guest today for the whole hour. His name is Ethan Zuckerman, and he has a new book out called Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Ethan's the director of the MIT Center for Civic Media and a blogger and one of the co-founders of the site Global Voices. And he's one of the internet's one of the internet's first serious attempts at gathering and curating global bloggers for a multi-national audience. And he's also one of my personal heroes of the internet. Hey, Ethan, are you there? I'm here. I have no idea if I can live up to uh, an intro quite that kind. Of that, but <laughs> thank you so much, Ethan. It's great to great to have you here for the hour. I just want to quickly mention that we have the live comments page going at WFMU.org, and we're going to take calls this hour. So if you want to chime in, you can give us a call at 201-209-9368. So, Ethan, I love the book because uh, you take on what it even means today to be a global citizen, not only why it's important, but more so how we can rewire our platforms and our institutions and even our thinking to make it easier for people to not only become global citizens, but thrive and benefit from being global. And I definitely want to make sure we end up talking about what you see are these benefits and powers that come with being global. But I want to start off talking about music. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that puts us on a territory that you and I both care a lot about. And yeah. I know that WFMU cares a lot about. So yeah. good well, place to start. Yeah. Well, I've known you for a long time and I've even been on some international trips with you. But uh, here's a question for you. Is it fair to say that your whole globalist disposition may start with your love of music? I think there's no doubt that uh, it was the gateway drug. Um, my first serious bout of international travel was in the year 1993, where I just finished college. I ended up moving to Ghana, West Africa, uh, to spend the year studying percussion uh, with people who were working on traditional Ghanaian music styles and trying to figure out uh, what's the role of traditional music in contemporary Ghana. Um, so that's definitely what's gotten me hooked. and. Certainly one of the things that I do every time I get in an airplane is try to get a sense for what people are listening to locally, both before I hit the ground. And then it's always a great way to sort of start a conversation with people on the ground. What are you listening to? What's fun? What do you hear? And it, it, it takes a couple of rounds to get past sort of the attempt to find international common ground. You know, yes, yeah. I like Michael Jackson, too, even after his death. Uh, but w what's local that I should hear that, that I wouldn't otherwise hear is always a fun question. Yeah, but you know, when you so you meet a lot of people uh, working on on serious international issues uh, through your work all the time now. But do you, do you feel that there's like that something kinship uh, related to culture though? Do, do you feel that people who might not have you know gone to, to a foreign country to study uh, music care or even like see globalism the same? I'm not sure that anyone ever gets hip, hooked on sort of the global perspective on the world just from the sheer nature of waking up one day and saying, you know, my gosh, this is a big world. I, I, I really need to see the world the way the Chinese people see the world. I, I tend to think that most of us need culture as a lever in. Uh, and whether that's music, whether that's food, whether that's art, people seem to find a lot of different ways to get really excited about what's going on in another culture. And I meet very few people, even the sort of very serious globalist types who don't have some sort of cultural passion that ends up being uh, the point of entry uh, into another nation that they're interacting with. So, hey, Ethan, can I get you to come a little closer to the mic? I think that might, might help. Fair us enough. Out a bit. Fair All enough. Right. Yeah. So WFMU is primarily a music station, but we're also a freeform station, one that celebrates all things eclectic and global. But as any uh, global music fan knows, there are very intricate issues related to cultural appropriation, engagement, even exploitation, mostly in the past. But you know, recent past too. You one of the recent pastish stories you talk about in your book is Paul Simon and Graceland. And, and I think a lot of our audience even knows what some of the issues were here. But can you walk us through that story and what that has to teach us today about being global and the need to rewire? Sure. Well, let's look at the Paul Simon story from at least two sides, right? So um, 
Paul Simon is in a bit of a career funk. Simon and Garfunkel's gone. Um, you know, after the, the the concert in the park, it becomes clear how great life was uh, with Art Garfunkel and how little people really care about his music. Without him, has an album that completely fails. And he's mentoring a young songwriter. The young songwriter hands him a tape by a group called the Boyoyo Boys. Um, and there's a lot of dispute about what, what's actually on this tape. Uh, the name of the tape is, is not the name of a recording that anyone ever remembers producing. But it's, it's pretty well established that he hears a couple of tracks by these guys, the Boyoyo Boys. And he does what any famous recording artist would do who wants to sort of appropriate that music. He calls up his record company, CBS. He says, hey, get me these master tapes. I want to make a record using them as backing tracks. So basically, I just want to use this as a raw material. Uh, and, and what's interesting is CBS tries to do it, and they call up the people who've produced the Boyoya Boys. They end up talking to their man in South Africa, and their man in South Africa is this pretty fascinating guy, Hilton Rosenthal. And Hilton basically says, first of all, like there is no multi-track master. I can't just give it to you. Why don't you get on an airplane and come over here? And that's kind of a non-trivial thing for Simon to do. There's a cultural boycott going on. He's going to piss off a whole lot of people if he goes over and violates the cultural boycott. But conversations happen on both sides. He, Simon talks to people like Quincy Jones, who are supporting the boycott, and sort of gets the blessing of a lot of people in the musical establishment to go over and collaborate. Rosenthal works, he's a, a white South African, but he works mostly on black South African music, and he starts working with a whole set of local producers to make the case that Paul Simon might be able to make some of this amazing music coming out of South Africa as popular as reggae music has been for Jamaica. And so ultimately, Simon gets on the plane, he goes over, and I'm going to argue that he more or less does the right thing. He pays musicians three times the going session rate. He shares a decent number of songwriting credits so that people end up getting royalties on it. And he basically makes the career of a lot of the people who play on that album. You have a guy like Ray Fury uh, who's playing guitar on that album who goes later and, and plays on, on Laurie Anderson records. Uh, huh. You have the bassist show up with Miami Sound System. So he ends up being this sort of fascinating bridge for these South African musicians to work globally. He gets work out of those songs that, that are, are pretty memorable and pretty timeless. I, I think a lot of people remember another story, which doesn't turn out as well, which is that Simon tries to do the same thing with some of the guys from Los Lobos. Oh, yeah. And ends up sort of flat out ripping off their songs, and, and they never speak to him again. Um, but the South African stuff, you know, Simon ends up touring and ends up playing South Africa, ends up playing Zimbabwe. And those shows are pretty impressive. So. I, what for me is sort of interesting is he, he really does mean to be a cultural appropriator. He means to be the colonialist bastard that we all think he is. And, and then through the intervention of a bunch of people in the process, he ends up actually spending a decent amount of time in South Africa and getting what's probably a deeper and more complicated picture of this over time. And then he sort of ends up opening the door not only for the South African musicians, but for a lot of other people who want to play in there. So for me, it's one of those stories. I had always heard it as, you know, big old bad Paul Simon, you know, breaks the cultural boycott. And, and the more that I've sort of looked at it, the more that I think it's actually a story about, you know, challenging yourself to sort of go beyond that superficial connection. Huh. Hey, just give me the master tapes and actually trying to figure out a way to, to actually work together and have that deeper interaction. <laughs> so that, you know, Graceland's like sixth, sixth grade for me, but I, was, I remember being a very, very big fan of that record. But there's this film clip that I've seen. I, I don't know if you've seen this. I would love to find it again, but it's Paul Simon and the band and some of the musicians at a black college. And he's just being torn to pieces by Spike oh, yeah. Lee. And what stands out in my memory of this is like the level of fury that's coming at him, but this look on his face of like utter despair and bafflement, like, dude, what are you doing? I'm, I've done this great thing. Why am I being attacked? And and, and it's, it seems that, I don't know, like that we still have these instances where people are trying to perhaps do something right. And I was thinking of the Coney thing that, that you were very interested and talked a lot about a few years ago. 
Well, yeah. So I, I, I mean, to sort of set the context for, for our listeners here, right? So Coney 2012 video campaign done by Invisible Children, uh, they put out this very carefully produced video talking about Jason Russell's personal devotion to seeing Joseph Coney be brought to justice and basically trying to take a movement that, that's been very successfully built out of teenagers in the evangelical church and trying to broaden it into sort of a U.S. teenage movement and starts getting a huge amount of attention very quickly. It's actually one of the um, fastest trending YouTube videos. It, it gets 100 million views in six days, which basically yeah. kicks the butt of anything else we've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it gets enormous backlash very quickly. And some of the backlash says, hey, Invisible Children isn't doing a ton on the ground. They mostly make films. Some of, I, I think, perhaps some of the more justifiable backlash says, you're really not giving Ugandans a lot of agency in this. It's basically, you know, the white savior comes in and saves the poor Ugandans. And in fact, you know, northern Uganda is no longer at war. Joseph Kony is no longer in Uganda. Um, and Jason Russell, you know, unfortunately has, you know, a psychological breakdown. And it's really about exactly that moment that you were talking about where Paul Simon is looking there and sort of going, I, I really thought I tried to do this right. I, I talked to people, you know, on both sides of the boycott. You know, I, I went out and, and made sure that people were really well compensated for this. My goal for this was to make sure that the black music of South Africa was getting heard. I think Russell ends up feeling much the same way. And I, I think that's what's so hard about this is, you know, everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. And if the counter reaction is always to sort of say, well, you didn't do this, 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 and this, it becomes much safer to stay on your own culture's ground. It's much, much safer never to sort of try to cross over and, and work with someone uh, who's coming at, uh, from a very different culture. It's, it's, it, the collaboration across diversity ends up being a really difficult thing. The flip side, of course, is it is possible to do this really wrong and mm -hmm. really badly. Uh, at the end of the day, I feel like Simon, you know, balances the equation pretty well in part because he gets really good help in South Africa. At the end of the day, I was pretty concerned about the message coming out of Invisible Children. But what's so hard about this is you don't want to make a blanket statement. You don't want to say, you know, bad Americans don't try to work on international issues. That That's not a helpful no. outcome of any of this. And, and, and I think that's you know, th this is a moment where the culture of critique, where in some ways the easiest thing to do is to sort of look at it and say, well, what's wrong with that? Um, isn't always the most helpful response. Some, sometimes the, the, the constructive criticism like, you know, what, what should he have done better uh, is an interesting question. And, and that probably is an interesting question for something like Invisible Children, which is still a going concern as an organization that's still working on these same issues. Yeah, and considering how much uh, you were invested in and talked about this, that's not in the book. Your book really is very dedicated to, to, to figuring out what are some perhaps ways to do it the right way. And it's a book, you know, it seems to me about the future and how we can rewire to be better globalists. But you do start, you take us all the way back to Diogenes the Cynic. <laughs> is he really our first cosmopolitan? Diogenes is a really funny dude. Um, you start, you know, and, and when you're getting into the ancient Greeks, right, it's, you're not necessarily reading what these guys wrote because a lot of these guys didn't write. Mm -hmm. um, they simply argued with people. Right, you know the 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 discussion medium of the time was the verbal argument, and often they're being remembered, you know, sort of generations later. Um, but to to me, he's always seemed like the old dirty bastard of of philosophers. I mean, you know, this is a guy who is basically remembered for being outrageous. Um, there's a, a a story written in the lives of the great philosophers uh, in in which he's masturbating in a public square, and someone tells him off. And he says, if it were only that easy to relieve my hunger by rubbing my belly, uh, which is sort of a great line. Um, but the most outrageous thing that he probably ever did was to say that he wasn't a citizen of Athens. He wasn't an Athenian, that he was a citizen of the world. And that notion 
that you would give up your locality, you would give up that local identity, and that you would try to identify with everyone and with the other was an incredibly radical thought at the time. Now, again, from the critical point of view, right? You know, this is a guy who basically had been to parts of Turkey and parts of Greece. Um, his identification with the rest of the world was was limited by the technologies of the time and his own ability to travel. With his and barrel. at the end of the day, he was a philosopher in Athens. Uh, but the ambition is is pretty exciting and pretty shocking. Yeah, but it, it seems to me that, that, you know, by sticking on this moment here of, of sort of trying to reconcile his words and deeds. I mean, I've never really thought of it in that way. In fact, he's always been one of my heroes for that. But you point out that by saying it that way, it may have been his way of saying that he just sort of hates the local authorities that would like to regulate him. And, and you know, that remind that just makes me think of like global corporations today, you know, that they, they seem that they, they want to say they're global and cosmopolitan, but mostly it's because they're looking to escape like the rule of local law or jurisdictional powers. I think that's absolutely true. And and I think it's another one of these things where you end up in a very complicated space. In in the last chapter of the book, I, I tried to do something that I may or may not succeed at, um, which is trying to explain why this question that I'm asking, this question that I'm asking is how do we get positive, how do we get interesting, stimulating, cognitively diverse ideas and influences from all around the world? Because as I argue in the book, you don't get it automatically just yeah. by plugging into the internet. You know, Just because I'm on the internet and lots of people are in Turkey or on the internet, I do not necessarily get any interesting ideas from Turkey. I would actually have to work at it. And so I started looking at this question, you know, from the perspective of global corporations. How does a company like Pepsi or Coke look at this? And what's interesting is a lot of these global companies are starting to look for people who are bridge figures, who have lived in multiple different cultures, who understand how to relate to different cultures, often people who sort of grew up between multiple cultures so that they have that ability to pass between those cultures. And you could read that a couple of different ways. You could say, wow, you know, that's really smart um, that, you know, Pepsi is looking at Indra Nui as someone who understands the U.S. and understands India. Or you can look at that as something really sinister and essentially say, wow, these corporations, they're not just content with, you know, conquering as much of the world as they already have. They're going to look until, you know, the point where they dominate the entire known universe. And the way that people have reacted to that last chapter, I, I think actually has a lot more to do with where, where they're coming from than where I'm coming from uh, in, in the book. There's a lot of people who seem to be reacting that, that uh, very angrily that the last chapter isn't a screen against global capitalism. <laughs> uh, and then I think other people who are sort of looking at this and going, you know, that does seem to be, in many ways, the most powerful forces shaping globalism right now are not the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, not the U.S. versus China, um, but our companies, whether they're airlines or telecommunication companies or brand companies, trying to figure out what what's their role uh, in, in the sort of 21st century power struggle. Yeah, well, you know, if, if, if the corporations really want you to uh, help them be more global, I think they should, you know, just give you a fee and fly you somewhere. But I think the book is written for a, a lot of us, quite frankly, to, to, to learn how to be uh, more global and more uh, uh, connected. But I want you to quickly address uh, surveillance because it seems that, you know, obviously surveillance is a big story in the news right now, but one of the ways we can learn about not being able to face our biases and failings when it comes to being citizens of the world, um, it seems that survey, like if we, through surveillance, we can learn a lot about these. And you even tried an experiment of your own where you recorded your online behavior for a few weeks. You were your own personal NSA. But the results you claim, and this made me laugh out loud, were too embarrassing to even share with your wife. <laughs> what were you doing online? Uh, I was spending a lot of time on Reddit, and I was reading a lot about the Green Bay Packers. Um, so, so look, so, so the idea behind this was that I think people tend to imagine themselves as being much more global than they actually are. Yeah. And, and I think the Internet is kind of programmed for this. Like, I, I have a theory. It's not well proven. But I think every time we're, like, on the Internet and we randomly end up on a page of China, um, 
we pat ourselves on the back and sort of say, look at me, I'm global. You know, I'm getting all this global influence. Um, and I think we actually need to be aware of where we're spending our time. And so I've been trying to go through self-surveillance exercises yeah. and, and figure out how I'm spending my time versus how I perceive myself to spend my time. And I perceive myself to spend my time um, looking at a lot of global news. I help run Global Voices, which has an enormous amount of content from around the globe. But I installed this little piece of software called Rescue Time that looks at what windows I have open on my laptop. And when I have a web browser open, what page I'm looking at. And I ran this for the first week, and I, I thought I would blog the results. Uh, but the truth is, I looked at it, and, and Global Voices wasn't even in my top 10. Uh, <laughs> but in my top 10, this was you know, at some point in October, um, ESPN was up there, Packers News was up there, and I just wasn't ready to out myself as someone who is spending far more time you know, following Don Driver's career, you know, in his, you know, 15th year in the NFL than I was following the elections in Senegal. Um, but it was very interesting. I found that it started forcing me to sort of look for those sources of serendipity in my own behavior that just sort of saying, okay, every morning I'm going to go to Global Voices and then every morning I'm going to read the global section of the New York Times that's really hard to do. In some ways, what you're really looking for is what's exciting that you're going to stumble upon. And where I ended up out of the experiment was discovering that the less control I had over my media diet, uh, the more that I discovered. Amazing. So the more often I was sitting in front of my machine and I could search for whatever I wanted, I could explore any topic I wanted on Wikipedia, I could read the Times of India, those moments I tended to choose to learn more about the Green Bay Packers. When I made myself listen to NPR podcasts in my commute from Western Massachusetts to Boston, I tended to stumble on interesting global ideas that I might not have stumbled on otherwise. And that got me really thinking about these questions of whether we choose well for ourselves and whether putting ourselves in a media environment where we have choice over every aspect of what we encounter is actually particularly healthy for us. Yeah, let's 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 I want to come back to Global Voices real quick though before we start talking about like how to how to reprogram. Our guest today on the program is Ethan Zuckerman who's the author of the book Rewire: Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connections. You can follow along uh, live on the AccuPlaylist page at wfmu.org or you can give us a call at uh, 201-209-9368. So, Ethan, you're one of the co-founders of Global Voices, which is probably one of the most famous international collections of blogs for a multinational audience. Now, I got to watch you create this uh, around 2000. Was it 2004? Yeah, 2004. Yeah, that's right. And it always seemed to me that you were trying to do two things at the same time, which was, one, find a way for Americans to get out of their filter bubbles. I mean, you were, you were about filter bubbles before they were even called that, and experience voices from around the world. But two, you also just wanted to make the Internet more global. But after reading your book, it seems that perhaps what you've been interested all along, since even when you went to Ghana for the first time, it was kind of solving this issue of media attention. So, so one of the one of the reminders on this, and let me be very clear on this. I, I'm I'm one of two founders of, of Global Voices, along with Rebecca McKinnon, and she reminded me as I was writing my book that that she and I have always had different goals for the project. Um, and you're absolutely right. One of my explicit goals for Global Voices was I saw it as a way to hack the New York Times. So I was living in Ghana in 2000, and I was looking at how the global media covered Ghana's election, which was an incredibly successful election, free, fair, transfer of power from a former dictator to a democratically elected regime, and got very little love in global media. And I started getting obsessed with this idea that Ghana, Africa, the developing world as a whole was never going to get a fair shake until it started getting more attention, and particularly more positive attention in mainstream media. 
And when I started working with Rebecca around 2003, 2004, she and I were both getting very interested in the idea that you were hearing very different things about countries through blogs than you were in mainstream media. In her case, she was reading a lot about China in the mainstream media, but it was very different from what she was getting from reading Chinese blogs. For me, I was getting very little Africa in the mainstream media at all, and I was getting a lot of interesting stuff out of blogs. So we thought we would build Global Voices as a way of amplifying some of these voices from the developing world, helping people get a, a very personal view of what was going on in a conversation in Ghana or Gabon. But I think we probably differed on that question of our ability to influence global media. I think Re Rebecca was more realistic and, and perhaps more cynical than I was and sort of felt like it was very unlikely to shift the focus of someone like a CNN. Mm -hmm. I was pretty idealistic about it. And I sort of thought that if we were demonstrating that we had really terrific content coming from all over the world, and particularly if we made it available for free uh, to other media outlets, we would see a shift. Uh, I would say in the long run, she's been right. We, we've had a huge success in building a community of about 1,100 people who work together every day to give you insight on what people are talking about in Peru. Um, but very little of it's been amplified in American media. It gets much better amplified in European media, which has much more of an appetite for the international. Um, but it hasn't had a ton of impact on what people are talking about in U.S. media. And, you know, so this has made you think a lot more about attention over the years as you sort of come to terms with maybe not being right or having your dreams shattered and what do you feel you 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 think now or think differently about attention versus when you started that well i i've been reading uh herbert simon uh just an utterly brilliant thinker who started talking about the economics of attention he has a wonderful speech that he gave in 1971 and he basically, the, the analogy he says, he talks about the fact that his daughters have rabbits and because they got a boy and a girl rabbit, they now have a surplus of rabbits. And that the only way that you can have a surplus of rabbits is in relationship to something else. So you have a surplus of rabbits only because you have a deficit of lettuce. Uh, you've got more rabbits than you can feed. And so he looks at information and says, look, we're going through a period where we're suddenly dealing with an incredible explosion of information, an absolute surplus of it. And this is 1971. So he's predicting a surplus of information based on photocopying. Uh, so suddenly that ability to write a letter and disseminate it to 100 people rather than you know ju just to one person, he sees as, as the information explosion. And he says, logically, if there's going to be a surplus of information, we're going to have a deficit of attention. It's going to be much, much harder for us to pay attention to things. Attention becomes more scarce. It becomes more precious. And he goes on to suggest that we're going to need aggregators, that we're going to need filters to try to deal with this. Um, so this is pretty smart thinking, sort of 40 years before, you know, my friend Clay Shirky articulates some of these same concepts around, you know, there is no information overload, there's only filter failure. Um, but I think we're at a moment where attention has become one of the most important, one of the least discussed commodities. You have a music market that's sort of blown up. And so rather than musicians going to labels to try to find an audience, everyone's trying to find an audience directly, which ends up being competition for listener attention. You have advertising showing up absolutely everywhere and colonizing every inch of online space and advertising is at its root an attempt to pull your attention away from the content that you're paying attention to and pull it onto an ad and we have people talking about how their attention is getting incredibly fragmented and it's because so many people have put a quantifiable value on it and are sort of demanding it my approach to attention in all of this is to sort of say, within all this battle for attention, there may be issues that we need to know about, either to be effective global citizens. We need to know what's going on in Syria. We need to know what's going on in Egypt. 
or we may need to know about so that we have enough cognitive diversity so that we don't end up like me spending all of my time thinking about the Green Bay Packers and not encountering different ways of thinking, different ways of encountering the world. So I've started thinking about this in terms of how can we play with the economy of attention and sort of seize attention for topics that we otherwise wouldn't pay attention to but might have really serendipitous effects if we can focus on them. Yeah, so what are what do you feel that the the the, the most successful things that you learned about how to do this from Global Voices were because you did a lot of amazing work with translation. You did a lot of amazing work with finding what you already referred to as these bridge builders, finding like which translated into finding local bloggers who are already uh, blogging in in their own language and perhaps could also blog in English. What do you feel like the most important lessons you got from Global Voices for your music? <laughs> Well, I, I think we ended up with, with three of them, and these sort of are the working method of, of Global Voices. Um, the first thing that we figured out was that you need to have people who are deeply knowledgeable about local culture, but are also deeply knowledgeable about the reader's culture. And we call those people bridge figures. So it's fine to have someone who's reporting for you from Nigeria who knows the Nigerian Twitter sphere or blogosphere, who's cool on Facebook. But if they don't know how people in the US or people in the UK think about things, they're not gonna be particularly effective. So we're looking for people who sort of conceptually have feet in two different worlds. So these are often people who sort of studied abroad or people who are living as expatriates, but who now who know how to explain Nigeria to Americans and America to Nigerians. So first, you have to find the bridge figures. Next, you have to ask them to do some of that work of contextualizing. So the first is to sort of say, what's going to be interesting to an international audience? And then what else do they need to know to know why this story is important, why they would need to pay attention to it? And then the third thing that's turned out to be enormously important for us in that community is that language is, at the end of the day, the barrier that no one's able to jump across. Yeah. It's fine that Google Translate allows you to, to plug in a web page, but you know, most of us don't enjoy reading in translation. Uh, and it can be pretty painful to read those pages in translation. So we started realizing that we needed people who could translate really well from French and Spanish into English. Over time, we realized that we actually needed to publish Global Voices in as many different languages as we could, and we published in about 30 of them. The big shift for us was realizing that we had to let people write in the language they wanted to write in. And this was really scary for us at first. We were used to having this sort of edited publication our editor you know, happens to speak seven languages, but it's only seven. And <laughs> if it shows up in Chinese first, she can't read it over and figure out whether it's just out of line. But we discovered that by letting people write in their own language, we got so much better stuff, so much more interesting stuff. Our Africa coverage got so much better when people could write in French first that we ultimately had to do it. And, and so what I'm interested in now is sort of how do we extrapolate from this. Yeah. We know that we need translation that's sort of seamless and transparent. It's not enough to put important information out there and say, I'm sure you'll run this through Google Translate if you want. You're never going to find it. Search engines are really good at finding content within a specific language. They're really heavily weighted against taking you to content in another language. So we somehow have to make language a lot more transparent. We also need those guides. We need those bridge figures who are sort of sitting there and saying, hey, there's 450 million people using social media in China. I'm willing to bet that some of them are saying something that's interesting and worth knowing about. Let me help you wade through it. Let me help you understand what they're talking about, why it's funny, why it's important. And let me help you bring you into the dialogue. And so what Global Voices, I think, is now trying to do and what I'm really hoping to do in, in a lot of different ways and on a global scale is sort of identify and empower those people who can say, 
this is the amazing conversation that you're missing out on because you don't know to be searching for it, because you don't speak the language, because you don't know that there's something cool going on in China. Let us help you sort of find out what's going on in that space. Yeah. And you articulate this question, or I mean, this, this question just runs through the whole book. But there's at one point you're talking about the number of Chinese folks who are translating into English. And, and, you know, and, and you ask the question, you know, why is there so much work being done by Chinese netizens, mostly, you know, mostly working to hone their English skills, get social capital doing this, translating English content into Chinese? But there's just not on the flip side. You have – and the ones who do get a lot of social capital, um, you know, the few um, sites that are translating English stuff from social media – I'm sorry, in, from Chinese into English. But I, 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 I'm – not sure I still understand. Like, what is the answer when you went to this question? Well, so I, I'm not sure it's entirely about social capital. So let, let's talk about so, sort of the, the, the facets of this, right? If when US TV programming goes on the air, right? So True Blood aired last night on HBO. It's already translated into Chinese. I guarantee it. There's a fan community that's grabbing this stuff as soon as it's posted online. They're breaking it up line by line, and they're doing full translation and subtitling on it and passing it out. And the dynamics, I, I don't think, are so much about prestige in terms of social capital. There may be sort of the bonding capital of, hey, we're faster than the other team yeah. in doing this. But a lot of it is just people really want to see this media. And if I do my part and translate a few lines of this and I'm part of a good team, I'll have access to this translated media. So I end up talking in the book about this community called EN, uh, which is a group of EN is, uh, is Mandarin for, for translation or translator. And um, these groups get together and they translate large chunks of the New York Times, large chunks of The Economist. You can read very large swaths of uh, the English language internet in Chinese. I think we don't know what's cool and what we should be paying attention to. And I think this is part of the danger of being a society that's so good at producing entertainment culture. There's the old um, Neil Stevenson line that, you know, the only things that America does well are, are music, movies, microcode, and high-speed pizza delivery. And if you're in the business of creating cultural objects, and three or arguably four of those are cultural objects, maybe you're not very receptive to what's cool in those other cultures. But it probably gives us a giant societal blind spot where we don't have people sort of saying, geez, I really wish I had more sites like Tea Leaf Nation or Donway um, translating the Chinese internet because we don't actually know what's interesting, what's cool about the Chinese internet. And you end up a little bit with this chicken and egg problem. Um, I think we need people who are curating, who are sort of curating beyond the English internet, who are finding ways to sort of say, I'm going to find you something really exciting and rich. And by the way, it's well outside of your orbit of where you're expecting to get a cultural influence from. Yeah. And it makes me think of like a DJ that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, for someone to, to, to take me there. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a member of a couple of like private BitTorrent sites and, you know, they'll translate, they'll make subtitles for movies into English from, you know, China, other countries. But I think they're like, you know, cool movies we've read about that came out in the 80s or not. It's not, it's certainly not like what's going on right now getting translated. Maybe I'm just in the wrong club, but... Uh, well, I, I think the DJ scene gets a little closer, right? So I spend a lot of time these days on the OK Africa website, um, which is OK Player's way of sort of looking at what's going on that's interesting in sub-Saharan African mm -hmm. music. And they're listening pretty broadly and, and paying pretty good attention to what's out there and sort of pulling out tracks that I'm finding in a lot of cases uh, I, I'm really excited by. Um, and I would say that, you know, again, there's the possibility of doing this better or worse. I write a little bit in the book about Diplo, um, who sort of really made his reputation based on introducing people to Baile Funk and sort of Brazilian music that they wouldn't have otherwise heard. And for me, there's a lot of these questions about, is this just an artifact? Is this something really cool that I can drop into my set? 
or is this something that's sort of introducing you and getting you to explore further and getting you to sort of know about it? And, and it may come back to that question of appropriation. If all I know is it's Diplo, well, then maybe it's been appropriated. Maybe I'm not actually paying attention uh, to those folks coming out of the Bailey Funk scene. Uh, but if he's doing a good job of sort of getting us to understand who are those people we want to listen to, who are those people we want to pay attention to, then maybe it's closer to the sort of bridging behavior that I'm arguing is so helpful. Man, Ethan, we, we, we need like four hours for this show. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead because I want to make sure I get to a couple things here. In your book, you talk a lot about um, the internet and technology and serendipity. We, we, you talk a lot about um, some of your thinking and some of the research you've done into looking how from recommendation technology, but actually looking how we can program for what you brought up earlier was this idea of serendipity. Now, WFMU is a freeform station. We have serendipity in our DNA, but can we really program, how do we program it and design it into our infrastructure? So here, here's the theory behind engineering serendipity, and, and it's, it's definitely meant to be one of the more provocative and, and controversial ideas in the book. What I end up saying is that the three main ways we spend time on the Internet right now have a lot of biases to them. When we look at a site like the New York Times, we have the bias of the editors. What do they think is important? When we try to discover new information via search, we have the bias of what are we interested in. We end up finding a lot about what we already care about. If we're looking through information through something like Facebook, we have the bias of what do our friends care about. And most of us have friends who are pretty similar to ourselves. So we get trapped in these, these bubbles of homophily, of sort of self-love, of, of finding people who are like yourself. And so I'm interested in how we get serendipity. And first, we have to sort of consider serendipity as being more than random. Serendipity isn't just, you know, the happy accident. Serendipity is the unexpected insight that helps you on something that you're already working on. It helps you push forward a, a, a problem or find a solution from an unexpected direction. So in many ways, the sort of serendipity that I'm looking for is when Alexander Fleming serendipitously finds penicillium mold in a dish of bacteria. You know, on the one hand, this is going to be the luckiest scientist of all time, right? He catches antibiotics and, you know, suddenly his career is made. The flip side is he is better prepared than any other scientist in the world at that point to catch that mold spore. He's got the Petri dishes out there with bacteria growing in them. When he sees the bacteria dying off in a circular pattern, he understands that something about that mold spore must be very powerful. So serendipity favors the prepared mind. And I think it's absolutely possible to look at something and say, I'm beating my head against this problem. I know that I'm in a rut looking at it. And what would be really helpful is if I could look at this problem from another perspective. And so I'm interested in whether we can engineer serendipity by looking at what we already know, looking at the solution space we're looking in, and then yanking ourselves out of it. And the really simplistic um, analogy I give for this is sort of asking the question of where do I want to have dinner? Uh, I can go look at what Zagat says is the best place to have dinner and ask an authority. I can go onto Facebook and find out what restaurants you know my friends like. And I'm going to get certain suggestions, but they're pretty predictable. I might do better by looking at a community that I don't know well. And you know, the next time I have a Haitian cab driver essentially saying, hey, where do Haitians go to eat in this town? What's a great place to be introduced to Haitian food? And essentially look for a local maximum in a different community. And I think there's a lot of algorithms like this where we can sort of say, I know this community really well. I know this space of solutions really well. I'm going to consciously yank myself out of this space and put myself into a very different space and look at what solutions are working in that community and see whether I find a different uh, solution to a problem in that direction. Yeah, I guess what's provocative about this for me is that I feel that like people like yourself and me and probably a lot of WFMU listeners have a serendipity bias. I think we're really into this. I think we would be, I mean, we're not just prepared for it. Uh, we might be slackers, but I think we're uh, predisposed to it. And I think that in most cases, I mean, I just seem to meet a lot of people who are not. I mean, it just seems that the there are more people 
who are not. And it's not, as you point out, a problem with diversity. Or it's like this uh, a sort of pushback towards even something deeper, which you call cognitive diversity, which is what you're really sort of suggesting we should be aiming for. Can you quickly introduce us to that? And sure. I, I mean, I, I understand that not everybody enjoys the WFMU's eight-hour Sunra marathon. Uh, but I, I think part of what happens with sort of serendipity is that increased tolerance for risk. Yes. And I think what we're looking for in taking that risk is essentially saying there are problems that haven't been well solved through ordinary methods and where we may need to go into some sort of extraordinary methods to solve them. We need solutions beyond the ordinary solutions that we already know about. And I think serendipity is sort of a way of saying, I'm willing to increase my tolerance for failure. I'm willing to try some crazy out there ideas because maybe even if I listen to half an hour on WFMU and don't hear something I'm psyched about, or something that I'm even really comfortable with, maybe I will then hear the one piece of music that changes my yes. life. And so rather than sort of settling for mediocrity, it's a way of essentially saying, I'm willing to take a much higher risk of failure in exchange for something that's extremely transformative. And what I'm arguing is that that <clears throat> experience of looking for something very transformative comes from increasing cognitive diversity, from looking at multiple different ways to solve problems. And it looks like there are large classes of problems where simply organizing the best people in the world at solving them doesn't solve them as well as getting a really diverse set of thinkers to work together on solving them. And that's really counterintuitive at first. You sort of look mm -hmm. at this and you say, well, how, how can that be? If I can find the best stock picker on the planet, surely I want a team of five of the best stock pickers on the planet. But it's quite possible that what you actually want are a team of 20 stock pickers who look at the problem entirely differently and who are coming to it with entirely different cognitive strategies because one strategy doesn't work all the time. If you have a really simple answer, if it's a math problem, then by all means, you know, get the single expert. But if it's a really complicated, multifaceted, subtle problem, getting that incredible diversity of perspective often turns out to be the best way to go about solving it. Well, is, 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 again, this is a very provocative idea, but it's, it comes down to risk, as you just said. And, and I'm willing to go with you on here because you, you, know, you end your book with a lot of evidence suggesting that this risk not only pays off, but this is going to be our, uh, our future new masters of the universe, people who are willing to take these risks. And that's a kind of a bold claim. And, and I'm wondering if you could sort of end why you, you believe this to be so, that not only is this uh, uh, what we should be aiming for, but those who can pull this off are actually going to be the ones best positions to uh, make it in the future. I think there's a sense in which it's hard to imagine the reality that my kid who's now three years old is, is, is going to be living it in 20 or 30 years, um, being organized politically or economically uh, the way that it is right now with the U.S. in still such an incredible position of dominance. Uh, whether it's the rise of the middle class in China, whether it's India becoming a superpower, whether it's Brazil coming out there, it's hard to imagine either the sort of bipolar world of the U.S.-Soviet um, that, that I grew up in, or this sort of unipolar world of the U.S. dominates the show, um, it seems to me like we're heading to this very multipolar world. And I think the people who are likely to have a real advantage in, in thriving in a multipolar world are people who kind of live for that experience of finding themselves in an entirely different culture, going, wow, I have no idea what to do here, but I bet I can work this out and I bet I can figure this out. I think that flexibility, that ability to build contacts, that ability to build bridges is going to be pretty essential uh, for survival, certainly in a business sense, but I would also argue in, a, in an artistic sense, in a civic sense, I really care about trying to solve big global problems. And it's hard for me to imagine solving a problem like global warming in a way where you don't have the Indians and the Chinese and the Brazilians together at the same table. Hmm. And at a certain point, 
I think that means getting really good at seeing things from those different perspectives and being able to sort of shift perspectives as you have that dialogue or have that debate. Um, so I end up arguing at, at, at the end of the book that, you know, it's the connected, it's the cosmopolitans, the folks who figure out how to use these new technologies to have a deeply cognitively diverse view of the world who are poised to thrive and survive as we sort of head yeah. into the next couple of decades. Oh, Ethan, this was so much fun. I'm so glad you, you, you made some time to do this for us today. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, Ben. So Ethan Zuckerman is the author of Rewired Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connections. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon, Ethan. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to be with you. Man, I'm, I'm starting to enjoy doing the, the interviews uh, more. But when you have someone like Ethan Zuckerman, it's, it's, hard. it's hard to go wrong. But I want to thank uh, Andrea Salenzi here, who's been helping me out these past few weeks. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. Hey, Andrea. And she doesn't just get me water. She's like been <laughs> <laughs> instrumental. But uh, you're taking over for a few weeks. That's right. Uh, for the next four weeks, I'm going to be here 6 to 7 p.m. filling in for too much information. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be in France. What are you doing there? I'm hanging out, and I'm... <laughs> What are you doing in France? Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 oh, man, I hate you. And then I'm going to Rome in Venice. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. So thanks for, for filling in, and we'll be hearing from you as I... Uh, what should I call my show? Uh, the Andrea Salenzi Show. How about the Andrea Sholenzi? Bye-bye. All right. So once again, thanks to... You. Ethan Zuckerman <laughs> for uh, giving us the whole hour today. That was a lot of fun. listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, online at WFMU.org, and in Rockland County at 91.9 FM. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today in the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show, Roger Allen, guest DJ Roger Allen, returns for the ninth time to help present his interpretation of Canadian 80s heavy metal. Yes, Canadian 80s heavy metal today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. And to start it off, going to play some 70s Canadian heavy metal on an 80s Canadian heavy metal theme show. Here's Warpig with Flaggett from 1970 Hamilton, Ontario on WFMU. <laughs> 
Crooked Walker calling in, calling in? Or I'm, I guess I'm standing right here. You're, you're live. You're Crooked Walker, Roger Allen, on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show for the ninth time. Nine times. I'm actually putting out four fingers, but it really symbolizes nine because nine minus four is five, and in five minus two is three, and in three times three is six, six, six. 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 And that's what we're doing today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Who are you exactly, Roger Allen? Please explain who you are and what we're going to do today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. You're back. The I'm ninth back. time on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, and you have a recommendation from some of the people who have listened to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, and a recommendation for some of the people, in fact, fellow people here at the radio station recommended that we do a... Uh, yeah, the, the, the call-ins and the letters and the messages are overwhelming that we should do an 80s Canadian metal show. So all metal, all Canadian, all 80s today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, curated by Roger Allen. Roger, in past, again, just to reiterate, <laughs> what have you done on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio oh, show? Wow. What have you brought to the listeners out there? A lot of skate rock, right? A lot of skate, yeah. We did three skate rocks. We did an all-cassette show. We did a Vancouver record show. Show. We did a Halloween show. We did, uh, what was the last? I was just here. We did hip hop, um, Canadian 80s hip hop. And when Roger comes into the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, not only bringing the vinyl and the cassettes and the 8 tracks, because we've transferred some stuff from 8 track and played on Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, Roger brings the tidbits too. You love the tidbits. Love, you got to have visual representation when you're on radio. What did we just hear to begin the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show right there? Some war pig. Please explain. This is a bit confusing. 
Well, we've, we heard War Pig with Flag It, and that's from 1970, and they're a band from Hamilton, Canada. And that was originally released on Font Hill Records, and uh, that was later absorbed into the London Records catalog. And uh, they're an example of early psychedelic... Pr- proto-metal, and uh, members of that band completely deny any accusations that they were a Black Sabbath tribute band and that the band name uh, is just a coincidence. It's a very hard find to uh, get that record. You're saying nowadays about like $800 or something? I spoke to uh, the owner of Dandelion Records who said he had that in, and he sold it recently for about 700 bucks. Warpig with Flaggett, 1970, from Hamilton, Ontario. Canadian 80s metal. Okay, that's not quite Canadian 80s metal, (laughs) but just starting out. And we're going to be taking you back to the glory days of great Canadian heavy metal. Right there, Roger? Brighton Rock, Honeymoon Suite, Slick Toxic, (laughs) Raven, Platinum Bond, Vertical After, Witch's Hammer, Iron Gypsy, Thor, Anvil. All the band names give me a smile. Actually, this band name we're going to play right now gives me a real big smile. What do we got coming up? Some fist. We're not playing Honeymoon Suite. But we are playing Fist. Fist with hot spikes. 